So Ellen, there's something that really annoys me. And uh, I have this idea that certain restaurants, specifically really hot, trendy restaurants, they have this secret map of the space in the dining room that is only something that uh, the, the servers and the, the, the managers and stuff know about. And it is not working in the favor of the customers. Go into more detail about this. This week on The Eater Upsell, we're going to be joined by David Kinch of Manresa in Los Gatos, California. He's taking fine dining into a very interesting place right now. I can't wait to hear all about it. Okay, so, you know, as we are, as we like to do on this, on this podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll relay a scenario and then you tell me if I'm just being cuckoo here. Okay, cool. I'll react. So this is based on a few experiences I had, but the, the main one was actually at a, a restaurant from Jean-Georges Von Gerichten, ABC Cocina. And it, I went there when this place was just popping off. It was like En Fuego, super hot, super hot. So this hot. was like several years ago. It was like two and a half years, two and a half, three years ago. Okay. But this, this is stuck in my craw and I've never, I've never let it, let it go. Is that it was super, super hot. Uh, the wait on like a Tuesday night was like, you know, a hundred and... 50 minutes or something. I don't know. It was like <laughs> super long. Okay. And the server was like, well, but you know, if you like, you can have the full meal at the bar. And I said, okay, that's great. We would, we would like that anyway. And so the bar had the conventional bar and then like some, some high tables where people w- were sitting and eating and th- those were all full. And then over in one corner, there was this ledge that was by a window. It was a substantial ledge. It was maybe eight feet long and two and a half feet wide. It's like a stools. full window seat. Full window seat. So we sit down there and there is a, a waitress going around and, and taking people's orders. And we say, oh, hey, excuse me, can we order some food? We have the menu here. Can we order some food and some cocktails? She said, no, you can only order food uh, at the bar. Like at the physical bar itself. Yeah. Or at the, one of these tables over here. Like we could order the food uh, if we were positioned like less than two feet from exactly where we were at any of these places. And we were like, well, can't we just order it right here? This is the, this is, this is the bar room. Mm-hmm. She said, nope, we don't serve food right here. That's really weird. It's so weird. Was right? there, was there a table? Like, was this the limiting factor? I'm feeling, like I'm picturing this dining room and I'm not remembering whether this window seat that you're talking about had like defined table space to put plates on because like maybe this is a logical answer no it was a substantial space uh and people had drinks on it and it was big enough for dining and there were stools at it it was just for some reason for whatever operational reason no food right there that's very strange it's so strange and i wish that the the host had said you can order food anywhere in the dining room except for that like eight by two and a half foot patch of the bar right there that is a weird thing to not communicate especially if that's the space where the open seats were right but i think what that also um speaks to is the the broader weird practice of the but you can eat at the bar line that i think if you're prone to dining out without a reservation you you hear a lot and if you're someone like ryan sutton our colleague that's your favorite way to dine like he he and I think I'm not compromising his anonymity as a critic if I say like one of his major strategies is to go into a place and then like see what he can get as a walk-in at places where you don't usually have a lot of walk-ins. And that results in a lot of meals at the bar. And it's the preface of that that the, that the host always gives you. It's the but, right? But you can eat at the bar that like places it in a lesser 
category. It's like, well, you can have this lesser experience. And like, I guess if you're a restaurant where the service is a really important part of it and it's something that you've constructed as like part of the overall, you know, like theatrical moment of dining in your restaurant, like the bar is not the full dance. But, 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 I mean, it's like a but. I like eating at the bar. I, think I love it's it. Awesome. Yeah. It's great, especially if you want to be a little bit casual, especially if you want to dine by yourself. Well, actually, I have this move that I've pulled before that um, whenever my husband goes out of town, not whenever, because it would get very expensive very quickly, but occasionally when my husband goes out of town, I take myself out for a solo super, super fancy meal, and I usually will eat it at the bar. So I'll go to like some crazy fancy place like Del Posto, for example, Mario Batali and Mark Ladner's like billion star, super high-end Italian place here in New York, and I will sit at the bar and I will order their fanciest tasting menu. And I like that. They do the tasting menu at the bar They for do you? the tasting menu at the bar. Oh. Yeah. And not just for me. I mean, they can, you'll do it for anyone. That's amazing. And I think most places, in fact, will do, I mean, if they have a bar that serves a standard menu, they'll do the tasting menu at the bar. I was in San Francisco not too long ago and was a walk-in at Bar 13, a famously impossible to get a reservation at restaurant. And my husband and I walked in and we happened to hit it at the sweet spot when they had two open seats at the bar, which they reserved for walk-ins, but for which usually there is also a multi-hour wait. And we sat right down and we got offered the tasting menu. Wow, that's incredible. So if I may, or just return back to oh, this yeah, sorry. idea no, of the um Let's go back to how you like didn't the invisible, get this. The invisible rules and map of the dining room. And another example, and this is slightly more maddening in a certain sense, is a very trendy bar in Brooklyn called Achilles Heel. It's Andrew Tarlow. He's like Mr. I'm Brooklyn cool. Yeah. And he, he's a really cool bar. Uh, but I was there with my wife and we had sat down at a table that was like less than three feet away from the bar. And I was up at the bar and I was saying, hey, could we get some drinks and some food? And he was like, oh, okay, sit down. The The waitress will come over and take your order. And I was like, okay. And I sat down, you know, I lowered my body or moved it over. Like you like, didn't even materially I moved move. it over yeah. like 18 inches and then like slightly lo- lowered itself into a chair. <laughs> and then, you know. Four minutes later, a waitress came over and handed us the menus and took took our order. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, can't I just order from you? I'm just, I got your attention. I'm talking to you. You could just make it. Yeah. And I could just take it and move it over, you know, 26 inches to the table. I'm so of two minds about this. Like, I completely get this. And I've had this exact frustration like a million times before, especially the like wanting to order a drink from the bar. And then they're like, no, the the server has to take care of you. Like, so much of me wants to completely agree. But then part of me wants to be like, Greg, there are rules. Like, there are rules. And we and like, this is this is not chaos. You know, like there's there's a server for a reason and like her job is that she takes care of these tables and if you order from the bar then you tip the bartender instead of tipping her and like there are these infinities and I guess that's what your point is is like there are these secret rules and like ultimately it winds up not playing out for the efficiency of those of us who just want to get a freaking gin and tonic right but like it, and it's frustrating and it's and and you you kind of want to be like dude just like take my money i just want to give you money in exchange for the product that you want to sell me 100% why why are you turning this into like some weird like beckett style right. <laughs> like absurdist well, nihilistic comedy i should also preface this well i should have prefaced this by saying also the bar was fairly empty it just there weren't any seats at the bar but most of the ta- like we were the only people sitting at a table so we were the only people 
that like had to have this this server experience, which was a little bit maddening. And I understand like I don't want to mess up anybody's system or you no, know, you're not like, trying to be a difficult right. jerk customer. It's just kind of like uh, oh, because you stood here, you can't get this experience. That's really weird. Especially because, like, you're going to give the drink order to the server and she's just going to bring it to literally the same bartender who's going to make the drink. It's like cut out the middleman. Yeah. It's so much more efficient. It's so much more beautiful. It's like the Uber of drinks. It's actually very rare, but I think that, that you know, it's it's easy for me to say, you know what the best way to do this is? And this, this is how I would do it if I had a restaurant. But I think that, actually, it's pretty rare, but the coolest way to handle scenarios like this are when the service staff is like, okay, cool, you know, here you can can you stand over here it's really crowded but if you hang out here I'll tell you what i'll go bring you your drink yeah you know or you want that from the, let me see if the kitchen can do that or whatever well this is the saying yes philosophy yeah. right and yeah. this is like the danny meyer thing and the zingerman's thing and it's that whole notion that the customer not that the customer is always right but that the customer is the most important person in the room and so you've got to empower your staff to be able to say yes to them, like within reason, you know, like don't procure three ounces of Coke, but like procure like, you know, whatever it is that they're asking for that is within like the mandate of your restaurant and the transaction of hospitality within a restaurant or a bar. Like say yes, just say yes to people. It makes them happy. It makes them want to come back and spend more money so your business doesn't go out of business. I mean, and isn't that the whole point? It should be in theory. Maybe it's not at the places you tend to go. <laughs> Maybe you need to pick new restaurants. Yeah, well. I'll get in line, I guess, you know. Oh, man, that is super frustrating. I hate it when that happens. So right now in the Eater Upsell Studios, we are joined by David Kinch, uh, the chef proprietor of the restaurant Manresa. David, welcome to the studio here. Oh, thank you. So David is the star, the central figure of the second half of the fourth season of Mind of the Chef, the really genre-busting PBS food TV show, which is kind of unlike other aspects of food TV that are out there in the world because it's very autobiographical. I think it's it's less, it's not a competition show. It's not a, you know, reality show. It really is an interesting kind of social psychological take on the psychology of being a chef. So have you been watching the show since the beginning? Uh, I have not. I, you know, I'm not a big TV person. I don't have a lot of time for show. Um, if I watch TV, it's usually not food TV. What do you watch? Um, <laughs> but uh, I got caught up on some episodes, you know, to learn more about the show when we signed on to it. So uh, I find it fascinating. You know, it's not the usual food porn. You know, there was a lot of, and it was um, it was confirmed during the during the production of the show. There's a, just a real tremendous attention to detail, uh, especially in the demos, the way they film the demos. They, things are done over and over again until it's correct. And it takes a while to get into the groove. They do a lot of demos, which is, I think, what sets it apart from other shows, too. It's not just food porny. You know, there's just a lot of information that you do a lot of demos. So there's a lot of information to uh, pass on to people who are actually interested in cooking as opposed to just the personality aspect of the show. You know, that's one of the things that I found really interesting about it as a series. I'm also kind of new to it. Um, you know, I've been aware of it since it came out, but it's only in the last couple months that I've been really sort of binge watching all of it. And it's so fascinating how it clearly is kind of speaking to its viewers from an entry point of the food itself and then gets you into 
I guess, I mean, duh, this is the name of the show, The Mind of mm -hmm. the Chef. Like mm -hmm. after watching several episodes of someone kind of presenting themselves through the act of chopping or rolling pastry or, or, or whatever it might be, you really do become aware of the strange and beautiful balance of art and craft and emotion that drives sort of the highest level culinary you know, experience. Anybody who's involved in, you know, artisan or, or some sort of craft, you know, uh, and very and passionate about it, you know, it's, it's a reflection of who they are in a certain sense. So it's really easy to take it over to, you know, take it from that really superficial personality profile to, to a little bit more in depth. And I think they do a pretty good job with it. So do you think of cooking as an art? Uh, um, I think it's a craft first. I think it's something that you learn, you know, if you're good at it, uh, if you get good at it, you know, you, you work for mentors, you apprenticeship, you work for people who you learn a lot of different things about. And you spend a lot of time in very mundane rote tasks uh, about getting things done and getting things done correctly. And then from there, putting your own personal stamp onto things can be an artistic element to it. Are you pleased with, uh, you know, how the food looks in mind of a chef? Um, I was pleased with um, uh, doing the production of it. I was, you know, I was happy with how things came out. Um, I haven't seen a lot of the finished product. It's uh, mostly by design. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I want to see it in, in real time like everybody else. They didn't send you screeners. Mm, I saw I saw a little bit of it, and you know it's nice, but I you know I didn't dive into it to, to to like pick it apart or anything like that. You know, one of the episodes that actually really struck me of your season, which I guess or your half season, which maybe you haven't seen yet, is um, one that's that sort of takes as its entry point the idea of a fine dining restaurant. You're at Manresa, which is, I think, one of the finest of the fine dining restaurants in the world. Um, the way you deal with allergies and customer sort of requests and restrictions. And, mm -hmm. and the episode takes a very generous and artful approach to it, I think, like you. Well, thank God, because we, were, we <laughs> talked very frankly, you know, about a lot of things during the filming of that. It's, uh, it's hard to talk about issues like that and not be perceived as being, you know, anti-customer, which we're anything but. You know, it's uh, our job is to to please people. And you know, there's restaurants that we talk about in the episode. There's restaurants who say, you know, if you have allergies or you have restrictions, then you can't come to our restaurant. This is how we do it, and and we don't try to be like that. We try to do everything within reason and what's reasonable to to give people what they want and to make them happy. Um, the key word being reasonable, you know, and there, there are people who are simply not reasonable about it and, uh, and don't understand what restrictions or allergies mean. And uh, um, People like diners or people like chefs? Well, diners. I mean, I, you know, like we, you know, we, in, I'd say 40% of the people coming to the restaurant have some sort of restriction. And it really, truly is an American phenomenon. You know, chefs from outside the United States, we talk about this. It's never an issue. Is it only Americans who are, you know, are allergic to chocolate and onions? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, and, and, and it's, we try to do the best we can. If, so, if someone, if it threatens someone's, you know, if, if someone's allergic or someone is on a special diet because of medication or, or an illness or some ongoing illness, that sort of thing, we completely understand. But people who come in 
I think it's a lose-lose situation when they, you know, I don't like peppers and I don't like mushrooms, so I don't want them. And uh, we do all we can, but we feel like we're being cut off at the knees. I mean, we, we, spend, we spend our entire life and we spend our entire day trying to create correct, craft experience that really is the best representation of the restaurant. And, um, <clears throat> and you're limiting your ability and enjoyment. And who knows, you know, maybe you had a bad experience with mushrooms. You know, maybe you ate some bad mushrooms and you got sick and therefore you're never going to eat mushrooms again. You promised yourself, you know, but we take great pride in, you know, this is a poor example. We take great pride in how we source and how we prepare and, you know, maybe we can open your eyes. Maybe we can bring you back around, that sort of thing. And that's not a restriction. That is a dislike. And the other, the other thing we tried to, the point we tried to make was, is that uh, we will do everything we can to craft the meal as you want it because of your restrictions or allergies, but let us know in advance. It's really difficult when someone comes in and says, by the way, I'm vegan and I don't like eggplant. When they sit down at the restaurant, we have, we, I mean, we have full-time staff who tries spends time on the phone with people, almost like a concierge. They try to gather all the information 48 hours in advance. So even with these restrictions in place, we have enough time to craft an experience that you will be pleased with, and we can still do the best of our ability. The only thing we ask is that you let us know a little bit in advance, a little bit in time. You know, it's part of the deal. So this sounds like a, sort of a change in, in dining habits that's maybe like the last decade or something, would you say? Yeah, I, yes, mm -hmm. very much so. I think, you know, as, you know... Um, it's it's difficult to pinpoint. <clears throat> it, it it's really exploded in the past ten years. Mm -hmm. Literally, you know, most it, it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility. You know, to have eighty percent of the dining room with dietary restrictions, mm -hmm. and it's uh, like I said, you talk to people, um, you know, Asia, Scandinavia, Spain, uh, France, England. You know, it, it doesn't exist. I mean, people eat food. You know, they're not afraid of food. It does, it does feel very particularly American, I think. And there's also, and I, I don't want to point fingers and I won't say any names, but I, I know some people socially who I think have admitted to me that they make a point when they go somewhere very fancy or, or high end of calling ahead and letting the kitchen know that they have, you know, X, Y, and Z limitations, not because they actually have the limitations, but because they like the way it feels to sort of exert a degree of power over the kitchen. Absolutely, yeah. That, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And thank you for saying that. That's there are there is people who want to have control of the situation. And to me, it's like, why do you want to do that? We have I, I have I have 35 people on staff to feed 50 people a night. And our goal, our team goal, our vision is to create the best possible, most satisfactory and pleasant experience that you can have when you're at the restaurant for two and a half, three hours. We work really hard at it. We dedicate our lives to it. Why are you messing with that? Yeah, and especially are, when you're paying that much money. I mean, the, the sort of theatrical, immersive, comprehensive experience of, of dining at the high end over a multi-hour meal with dozens of courses is not... It's an act of surrender. It's an act of pleasurable surrender to the kitchen. And I feel like... Introducing your that's own all we ask. That's, that's <laughs> all we ask. Is, it's like, <laughs> we, I mean, nothing gives us better satisfaction. Is, is like you know, let us drive, and people say, you know what, that was really amazing. You know, I would never order sea urchin off a menu, but you gave me sea urchin 
as an example, poor example again. And that was amazing. You know, it's, it was a really a memorable experience. It's great memories. And I mean, that's what we, that's what we strive for all the time. And if people say, you know, I don't eat orange food and I'm not making a joke. I mean, there's, there's, you know, I, I, I don't eat anything that's white. You know, I only eat green food. It, it's almost like it's a game. It's like a parlor game. And it, sometimes it can be really mad. So you've worked in professional kitchens for what, like 35 years now, something like that. <laughs> yeah. I was just looking at your CV a little bit. Uh, very cool. <laughs> I was happily surprised to see that you worked at the Quilted Giraffe in mm-hmm. New York City. I knew you were going to pick up on that. Yeah. Greg, Greg is, I think, like, loves, loves the classics of New York City. Yeah, these places that are gone and that we only read about and maybe dig up the old reviews so what, mm. what was what was That's, that like? it's funny is that the quote you know i've seen there's there's been kind of a, a raised awareness about that restaurant there's been a couple of different articles written about it um recently and i think there's a idea of a book being floated about oh yeah in that, in that period of time so just, for those that don't know it was kind of this splashy fun 80s restaurant in new york city Mm-hmm. It was, um, you know, uh, New York, uh, the high end in New York in um, the 70s and going into the 80s was very French dominated. It was very hierarchical. There was French chefs. And if you wanted out to go out and have a great meal, you know, for that birthday or anniversary, dress up. You know, there's dozens of options in town. It was very, very competitive. And they were all French and they were all classically trained chefs and you know there were restaurants were different you know La Caravelle, La Grenouille, La Côte Basque they were all different the quilted was the first uh, you know it was, it was an American restaurant it was an American luxury restaurant that that wanted to be on the same stage as um, as these restaurants and I guess you could argue that the Four Seasons at that time was like that because you know it was really kind of the quintessential American restaurant at the time, but the quilt was very different. It was it was very contemporary. It looked to France uh, for ideas like the, the these other French restaurants, but it was much more on a contemporary basis. It was really kind of cutting edge um, um, in its inspiration from France. Pierre Gagnier was just getting a start uh, in the early 80s, and, and Barry had a, a, a connection with him. And actually, Pierre Gagnier came over and did a guest chef appearance in 1984, uh, before he got his third star when he was still in San Etienne. So that's kind of where they reached for. But it was low in fat. It was very colorful. Uh, it was very vegetable and fruit-centric. Um, Fruits. Yeah, Barry grew a lot of... He had a little, small little farm up in New Paltz. And uh, it was the most expensive restaurant in New York at that time. It was the most expensive restaurant in the country. Very unabashedly and very proud of that. And I was there for almost five years. It was um, a great experience. And the one thing I remember about it was it was open for dinner only Monday through Friday. We were closed on Saturdays and Sundays. Whoa. And uh, that would be almost an untenable scenario in New York as a restaurant right well, now. Well, you know, it was, an interest, it was interesting how they, how they approached that. It was um, they were going to be open five days a week. And they crunched numbers. And people spent more money Monday through Friday, attended to be tourists and, and people from out of town on the weekends. The check average was down. They had kids. They had a place in the country. You know, they drove away for the weekend and they had a work week Monday through Friday. And 
That's so you know, if, you, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're booked three months in advance and you're always going to be full, isn't, doesn't that mean you can pick the days you want to be open? Yeah. And they just chose to close on the weekends. So they could have a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> How do you decide when Manresa is closed? Um, Manresa, we're closed two days a week. Uh, we're open on Sundays. That's by design. We get a lot of industry. A lot of, a lot of uh, Sundays are very nice. It's a very civilized and sophisticated crowd on Sunday nights. People tend to avoid the weekends as well. So over the course of your career, we we're talking a little bit, you know, with the allergies about how diners tastes change. How do you, do you think that, you know, over your career, diners have become more overall, more accepting of this notion of fine dining? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's the, we're in a golden age of dining right now. I mean, there's pros and cons to that. Uh, it's the same with wine. I mean, you know, the, the best wine ever made in the history of winemaking is happening now. You know, you know, high-end France, you know, Burgundy. Burgundy's making the greatest wines they've ever made right now. They're in this 35-year period of great vintages and technologies and know-how. And um, it's like a tree falling in the forest. Um, there has to be customers out there to enjoy food. You know, if nobody goes to a restaurant, you know, the restaurant's going to close. But there is this, people are eating out like crazy uh it's gone away from being it's theater it's entertainment people go out you know that's, that's why there's so many casual places and loud places there there are social experiments um uh people know more are savvy you know, just with information out there people know much more about the food that they put in their bodies and how food's prepared um you know cultural exchanges you know it's for lack of a better term, ethnic food, you know, just food of different cultures. People are much more aware of it. They're, they're ready to try newer things, beverage programs, people, you know, wines from all over the world. People aren't afraid to put them on lists now, you know, and because people are more willing to try things. Um, you know, my world's fine dining. That's, it's, you know, it's, I'm in the restaurant business because I like to cook for a small amount of people and cook in a very uncompromising way. And a lot of people talk about fine dining being dead. I, I, I disagree with that. I think we're entering a golden age. What, what has happened is there's been a democratization of what constitutes as fine dining. There's not, people say, well, fine dining's dead. It's formal, you know, people in tuxedos and chandeliers and stuff like that. I mean, name a restaurant that's like that, you know. There's, restaurants like that don't exist. You know, fine dining is, has morphed into, um, for lack of a better term, uh, a casualness, but contemporary, signs of our times. Uh, fine dining restaurants tend to be the incubators. It's where ideas happen. They start at the top, and they, there's a trickle-down effect. Uh, um, so how do you, as a chef, how do you keep it How do you keep it fresh, like at Manresa? Do you go out and eat at a lot of other fine dining restaurants? Do you just kind of listen to your, your internal thing? Well, you know, um, we, we're driven a lot by product in California. I mean, it's, it's, it's tired and it's cliche-ish, but it's, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, what inspires us is, is seasonality and change. Uh, but then we apply our ideas. We try to be contemporary. We take notes throughout the course of the year of, of ideas we have. Uh, my kitchen team is very collaborative. We're very, very open in our exchange of ideas and, and how we feel about what we do. Uh, we're not afraid to tweak and change things on a daily basis. Um, I do a lot of reading. I'm inspired by more than anything else about travel. 
uh, and visiting markets. Um, I eat out in fine dining. I tend to do it. I, I don't tend to do it locally in San Francisco or anything like that. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of locked in my own little world. I'm outside of San Francisco. I'm an hour south, and I live in Santa Cruz, which is even further away. It's, it's our own little biosphere. So when I'm traveling, if I'm overseas or something like that, then I really make efforts to, to visit chefs that uh, are, are doing interesting things. Do you I, eat in your restaurant? Um, I sit down in the restaurant and eat very rarely. Uh, I've done it, counted on one hand in 13 years. How do you decide or how do you figure out where you're going to go when you're traveling? Like which restaurants, which markets? Um, my travel is always work-related. Um, I'm doing an event, um, a charity event. That's, that's a big part of what we do is, is um, help other chefs out. Um, but it's also an opportunity. You know, you'll go and you'll do work events, and then you have a, a day or two off. Uh, so these are just like short spurts. It's not like two weeks in, at one place. It's usually four days. One day to travel, one day to prep, one day to do the event, and then a day that's free that you can either pass out in your hotel room because you're exhausted and jet-lagged, or you know you can, you can do something that's, that's worthy and, and, and bring back. I find that one-day thing often to be kind of oppressive. Like, I uh, you know, also travel for work pretty frequently and find myself with that one day and... There are usually, I don't know, a dozen or more mm -hmm. restaurants that I'll want to go to mm -hmm. or markets that I'll want to check out. And the idea of trying to either prioritize them in a way that feels just impossible or to cram them all into one brutal powerhouse day of eating. I mean, neither. Yeah, it, it's, it's, then it becomes more like, you know, uh, notches in a belt. And um, that's, that's not very pleasurable for me. I mean, to me, you know, especially fine dining, it's it's supposed to be this really kind of pleasurable experience. You know, do three in, in three days, you know, it's, you know, it's, it kind of defeats the whole purpose of what you're, what you're doing. It kind of waters it down in a way. And um, uh, so I kind of try and pick my spots for it. Uh, the days are gone that, you know, where I just power eat, you know, like I'm like, physically it's tough to do and, and um, to me it kind of uh, downgrades the experience that you're trying to. How much does that sort of physical aspect of how the food makes you feel or what, you know, this is something I'm always interested in with a tasting menu scenario. It's like different tasting menus, <coughs> you feel differently after eating them. They're like the life. ones where you need to like be wheeled onto a cart at the end and you hate yourself and then there are the ones where you feel like you're you could go for a big mac and well, well that's you know a, you know a, a, a responsible chef it, it's interesting we talk about that in the show as well we, you know, we talk about this concept of 25 bites and it's um <clears throat> or it's, it's a really bad joke but it's appropriate is that you know you buy a pizza and someone says you know you want, I can slice into six pieces or ten pieces. And the guy says, mm, slice it into six. That tends too many. You know, it's, it's, I'm not that hungry. Yeah. And it, it, a tasting menu should, if you, if you go in and have an appetizer, main course, and dessert, or a tasting menu, it should really be the same amount of food. A tasting menu should be 
um, taste. What you're paying for yeah. is is you know a diversity of tastes and 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 maybe techniques and how things are presented and and ideas and that sort of thing. That's really what you're paying for. You you know the difference between three courses and 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 twelve courses is not four times more food. It should be the same essentially the same amount of food, but you know the portions should be uh, uh, modified to where when you're finished, you're sated, you feel great. You don't want to kill yourself because you know, you're so full or I'm never going to eat again. You know, you should be able to, you know, to kind of hop skip out of a place. That's, that's amazing. I wish more, I wish more people would kind of think about that. Well, that's, you know, <laughs> you if, know, if you offer a tasting menu, you know, the, the responsibility of chef should be that, you know, it's, it's, it's a responsible amount of food as well. Well, I, I wish that that idea of thinking of the bite as the fundamental unit of measurement would also be expanded to casual dining. I, I know a thing I've complained about to Greg numerous times over the years that we've known each other is <clears throat> that one of my most frustrating things when I go out with a friend to a casual place is if we both order an appetizer and one of us gets, say, like a, a, a crudo and one of us gets a salad, the crudo will be like four bites and the salad will be 10 bites and the pacing of our course is completely yeah. off and it drives me crazy. Yeah, that's, and, and that's a trend too, along with noise, which is I'm waiting for someone to start um, fighting about noise levels in restaurants and you're starting to see it. There's, a, you know, on the West Coast, a, a couple of the critics in Northern California and Southern California are starting to push back on noise levels in restaurant, that threshold of pain, you know, that F-16 at takeoff, you know, dull roar. It's like, look look at where we're sitting right now. We couldn't have a conversation in most restaurants you go to nowadays. That's why we'd be leaning towards each other and, you know, cupping our hands and, you know, at, at peak hours, you know, it's, it's, that's the new normal. And uh, that's a real shame. Who was it? Uh, John Mariani, I think, who used to travel with a decibel meter when he would mm -hmm. check out restaurants for Esquire, like when he was working for them several years ago, and he would just like put this decibel meter on the table in any restaurant he'd go to, and if it was over a certain limit, beware. Yeah, there's there's a lot of critics who do that. That's it's it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, our our large critic and our big critic in uh, in uh, Bay Area for the Chronicle, he he has a he has a noise rating, you know, as part of his reviews. So it's like not just three stars, but it's also like five. I think he does it with bells, you know, because of noise, noise right. levels. Yeah, that makes a lot of so. sense. Yeah, well, there was an article in the New York Times not too long ago about how New York restaurants are starting to at least be aware of the fact yeah. that sound is part of the experience. And I think that speaks to, you know, what you were saying about a golden age of dining. I think that speaks to a certain movement that's happening culturally where for a very long time it's been entirely about the chef and entirely about the food. And this recent resurgence of sort of the value of the guest experience outside of your mouth mm -hmm. um, seems to be sort of speaking to that. Comfortable chairs and a, and, and, a, and a sound level where you can have a normal conversation. It's funny. It's It goes back to, you know, the fine dining is dead thing. Um, everybody talks about the casualization of fine dining. But what happens when... All these people in their 20s and 30s, you know, they're out, they're being social, they're at these loud, noisy places that do small plates and things come in a haphazard fashion. What happens when, you know, they become more uh, economically mobile, they settle down, they have kids, um, they move out of the city, 
and then they have birthdays and anniversaries. Do you think they want to go to a place with a wooden bench and where they can't hear each other, you know, for their special night out? No, they go to, they want to go and they're willing to pay for a comfortable chair where they can sit down for two and a half, three hours, where they can have a decent conversation, a normal conversation. You got to pay for that. It's real estate. You know, you have to, you, you know, you, you have to have trained professionals who, you know, spend their life working, you know, to be able to pace and understand and when to leave people alone and when not to leave, you know, as opposed to, you know, people doing it as a second career or whatever it is. And you, there will always be a market for it. And in fact, that's why I'm a big believer in that whatever the new contemporary model of fine dining is going to be, the future is bright as ever because you have this whole generation of people who are much more savvy about food and wine but what happens when they get a little bit older and they mature and they're looking for that experience? You have this whole giant flood of people who are going in. And it's a big part of what we do at Manresa. When, you know, to me, that is what our demographic 10 years from now is going to be. So everything we do is, you know, you know, we don't have waiters in tuxedo. We don't have chandeliers. We don't have long tapered candles. And, you know, that's, that's almost like a cliche. Fine dining is dead. You know, that's been dead for 25 years anyway. You know, show me where a restaurant like that exists that, you know, is really in the forefront of what's considered fine dining nowadays. But Manresa, although I have not dined at your restaurant, I have definitely, you know, That's looked a at big it. mistake. That's uh, a real big I, mistake. Uh, it's, it's, it's on my list. But, I mean, it is a different environment is what it looks like to me. It's a fine dining environment. It's a fine dining environment. It's a, but, you know, we're also not doing 250 covers a night. We're doing, right. we're doing 50 people a night. So there's, there's, it's like... You know, who are people that spend $5,000 on a dress? You know, there's not a lot of people, but there are some. Mm -hmm. So and there's a reason why not a lot are made. That's why they're hand-stitched. Right, you know, there's someone who's devoted their life and their passion to making, to, to designing and making and stitching those perfect stitches on something that's never going to fall apart. That they're, And it might be a lot of money. People say, $5,000 for a dress, are you out of your mind? Well, you know, there's people who understand the value in it. And it gives them great pleasure, and they understand what it's about, and that's what that dress is for. That is the person that this dress is for. And there's not going to be a thousand of them; there might be twenty of them. But you know what? There's twenty people in the world who understand and appreciate the value, the perceived value, and that's you know what we do. I mean, Manres is an expensive restaurant, but we work very hard on uh, on that perceived value. When we when people come to the restaurant, we want them to leave and say. That was really great, and it was expensive, but we can't wait to go back, you know, mm -hmm. and for the appropriate occasion. I, mean, I that's think the, the analogy that has arisen in the last couple of years towards these kinds of fine dining, long experience, immersive um, meals has been theater. And I think it's not just because of the idea of this multi-sensory immersive experience, but it's also because theater tickets are outrageously expensive. Or maybe I shouldn't say outrageously expensive. Like maybe the point is, you know, theater tickets easily. I mean, especially here in New York, we're sitting a block and a half away from Times Square, where if you want to sit in like the crappiest seat at the back of the top balcony for one of these hot shows that's been running for 20 years, mm -hmm. you're still going to pay $250 a person. Mm -hmm. And that's if you buy it at the box office. Most people are going to wind up paying it through like StubHub or third-party seller, and they're going to pay even more. So, you know... If you're going to basically spend hundreds of dollars per person for what is essentially watching a movie from really far away that just happens mm -hmm. to be played out by real people, it makes all the sense in the world 
that you would pay a couple hundred dollars for an extraordinarily meticulous, detailed, I mean, to use your example, basically a couture dining experience. Yeah, very much so. And it's like when you're paying a lot more for something, for something that where the value is much higher, uh, the flip side is, is expectations are higher either. So you have to deliver. I mean, it's like the dress, you know. It's the same thing. Is, uh, is that dress going to, you know, meet your expectations on what you're paying for, you know, the craftsmanship and the design and, and how it looks on you or whatever. So, Do you find that there's a, um, a breakdown in, in the dining room at Manresa between the people for whom spending, say, $500 per person after wine and everything on dinner is not a financial blip and the people who've sort of saved up and made this a special occasion? Uh, you know, it's that's tough to tell, you know, in this day and age, you know, especially in Silicon Valley. Which <laughs> is, you know, everyone's wearing a hoodie. You know, yeah, people aren't wearing socks, you know, and they're worth $400 million. It's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I when I was very young, when I first moved to New York, I, I saved up for months and months. I was like an, an editorial assistant and a book publisher which like you, it was, you make you're, you're in it for the money, right? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I was raking it in. Um, and I saved up for, for almost six or seven months to have a meal at Le Bernardin. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, you know, I walked in the door and I felt completely out of my element. Like I felt, I mean, they were, they were wonderful to me, but like I, I felt so like everyone else in the room belonged and I didn't. And it was only with, I think, the sort of confidence and clarity of hindsight that I realized that probably a quarter of the people in the room also felt just as terrified as I did. Mm-hmm. But you had a great time? I did. Yeah, it's, it's a great restaurant. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a very special place. So the Manresa book is, I know, a huge influence to chefs and, and diners, too. I mean, It's you know. a gorgeous book. Thank you. I mean, beautifully written, beautifully photographed. It's so emotional and intellectual and... It was a huge. It was a huge release and a huge, a huge deal. I think to you know people that are very interested in the cutting edge and what's going on and and your work. I'm just kind of curious. I mean, obviously that was a long time in the making. How does it feel to just have that book on the shelf now? It feels great. You know, yeah. it's um, um, you know, we didn't we we had a lot of people work on it. A lot of very talented people, and it was a great collaboration. It was a great experience and. Uh, I'm very lucky that the the book did did quite well, and um, a lot of great feedback from people. A lot of nice notes from chefs and amateurs alike, you know, who who were inspired by it. Um, so that feels good. The, the funny thing is, is you know, you know, we talk about this on the show is the difference between passive and dynamic, and uh, looking at it, you know, what that is, is it's a snapshot of the food that we made, you know, two years ago. It's, uh, we're cooking very different now. There's, there's not a lot of things in there that we, that we make or think about anymore. It's, it's, it's really fascinating to do that. I think that is one of the, I guess, both upsides and downsides of a cookbook is it's a great chronicle of a moment, but then as soon as the words and the pictures hit the page, it's, you know, it's trapped in amber, and it doesn't evolve the way that real life evolves. Yeah, I remember when, when El Bulli was a restaurant, when it was open, you know, he he did, near the end, he was doing, you know, a book every other year, and it was it was to capture that, that, that time frame and snapshot of, of their evolution. And it was like, 
that's really ambitious. But now, you know, I look back at my own book, we're like, you know, ha, we used to do it that way, or, you know, we used to, we actually did that, you know, and that all makes sense now. I think it's a, a trend in some New York restaurants, sometimes casual, sometimes a little bit, you know, nicer that they have like actually the cookbooks in the kitchen, the shelf, if you can see them. Oh yeah, like like the collections of everyone else's. The collections that they, that they almost like yeah, definitely. To just to like it's kind of this weird thing of like obviously maybe they're wearing their influences on their sleeves, but also saying, you know, this is this is who we respect and Manresa the cookbook is definitely one of those books. Oh great. A, a lot yeah. of Yeah. <laughs> Every restaurant will have a copy of this on the but shelf. But also like people learn something. You yeah. Know? That's why they got it. They they wanted to get inside and figure out what you're That you book know. was a it, that book was, you know, I don't want to say it was easy to write, but it was it was very comfortable to write it because it's funny, um, um, Aaron Wenner, who's uh, was the publisher, uh, the editor, Ten Speed, and uh, I've known him socially for a long time, and uh, always bugged him about, I want to do a book, I want to do a book, and he's like, um, okay, we'll put together a proposal. And he's blowing me off. He's, and I realized, and, was, and then uh, there was a period about three, about three years ago where he said, you know, you should do a book. <laughs> <laughs> and and I realized Aaron was waiting for me to be ready to do a book. Oh. You know, nowadays chefs, you know, and the power of the media and everything, uh, a chef opens up a restaurant and becomes hot, becomes trendy, and part of the trajectory is a year and a half in, he does a book, you know, whether he's ready or not, she, he or she is ready or not. And uh, it's part of and then a TV show or whatever it is, you know, whatever trajectories are nowadays. And... Um, for me, uh, writing that book, it happened at the right time. We were ready to, we were ready to tell our story. We were ready to, uh, who we are and where we are, which is all important details. We, it wasn't just a collection of recipes. It was actually a story. There was a narrative. What does it mean to be ready? Like, is it just a question of time or? Uh, I think it's more level of maturity. You know, it's easy for me to talk about maturity now because I'm an old guy. You know, I'm not, I'm not a young cook anymore. Um, so, you know, there's, there's always levels of development. You never stop learning, obviously. You know, I, I learn something every day. I, um, in this day and age, you know, cooks that come into the Manresa kitchen, uh, they've all staged around the world. They've worked in different restaurants, and, and they worked in places that I only could have dreamed about working at, you know, at, uh, you know when I was a young cook. So they're filled with a lot of ideas, and they have a lot of experiences that I could only have dreamed about, you know, in a first-hand basis. So I'd be foolish to think that I know everything and can impart everything to everybody. As, a, you know, the chef, the boss of the kitchen, do you have any sort of, like, time requirements? Like, are you like, you know, if you're going to work for me, you're going to work for a year or six months? Yeah, right? it's, you know, anybody who works anywhere, you know, for less than a year is usually a waste of time. You know, it's, I hate training people. You know, I just, you know, it, it drives me nuts to sit and like, uh, be, you know, self-consciously impart, you know, it's nice when people are in the groove and, um, doesn't mean I don't do it, but, you know, to train someone, you know, and our, our kitchen culture is very idiosyncratic. We have a lot of systems that I think are unique and different, you know, just kind of part of, who we are and what we do, just like any other kitchen. And it takes someone three months just to walk around to know, you know, 
or a spatula is or a chinoise or, you know, to be able to set up and just be comfortable to where they can really produce on it. So training and being comfortable, that's six months right there. So if someone leaves after six months or a year, you know, it's, it really is just a complete waste, not only of my time, but of theirs. Um, I'm a big believer in training people, finding people who care. That's really a big thing. I'm not experiencing long resumes and, you know, you know, worked here and worked there. That's all great and it's all fine and dandy. But uh, uh, the important thing for me, people are really, really passionate, want to be at Manresa. I can show them what I want them to do. And hopefully we treat people with enough respect and we take care of people enough that they tend to be around. We have, you know, we have fairly low turnover. We have, uh, I have had people who worked for me since the day we opened the door 13 years ago. Um, people have been in the kitchen for, for, people tend to stay for three years, that sort of thing. I, I couldn't ask for much more. And to me, that makes my job easier because the longer they stay around, uh, the more comfortable they are, the more that they exert their own influence on the kitchen, and I don't have to train someone new, which is, which is great. So at Manresa, um, it was about a, a year, a year and a half ago, the restaurant experienced a devastating fire mm -hmm. and was closed for about half a year, and you guys reopened, was it New Year's Eve? Uh, yes, we reopened January 2nd. We did, we did service New Year's Eve, and we opened January 2nd. And, um, you know, in, in reading interviews with you from during the, the period when, when the restaurant was closed and rebuilding, there's there was an incredibly palpable sense of something that I think in other um, conversations with chefs and interviews and, and TV shows and everything like that, I feel like there's, there's a hint of, but it was so evident that the you were, you felt like this sort of human loss of the restaurant as a space. Like there was a feeling of like you, you missed it, you wanted to get back there. And it was it, it felt almost like a person that you missed in your life, which I, I found to be interesting and powerful. Maybe I'm bringing too no, much I, literary. I, no, I agree with that. This, you know, the, a restaurant. The restaurant is is the restaurant's not the tables and chairs. It's the people who work there. You know, it's it's the experience that we work hard to create as a team. You know, so the fire, what burned was you know obviously the building burned, but uh, you know there was a lot of other things that burned as well, and. Um, Thankfully, though, uh, it's behind us, and the uh, majority of the people came back, which is really great, made me feel great. Uh, we lost very few people, and it wasn't because they didn't want to work there anymore. It's just just the nature of, of someone's place of work disappearing for half a year, you know, so. Um, Have you been able to recoup your losses from that? Um, we're getting there. I mean, you know, I try, mm, you know the fire had... Fire had a big effect on me in a lot of ways, and uh, it did a lot of damage in a lot of ways as well. And you know, I'm almost back. Um, the restaurant's almost back. In terms of loss, you know, there's always financial loss. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, just you know, you can you can work with an insurance company, and they can make sure that your doors are open back up and stuff like that. But you know. You know, if you want to talk about money, you talk about six months of, of lost revenue and six months of, you know, a family that you created, you know, a team that's working together that, you know, has no source of income as well. There's a lot of factors. And, uh, but uh, I like to think that's the past. Uh, it is, you know, it's a new restaurant. It's a different restaurant. I think the restaurant's better than it's ever been right now. And I think the fire was a big impetus in that. You, you learn that 
something you worked hard at your whole life, it can disappear really quickly and you learn perspective on things that are important. What's important, what's not important. There's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of noise in our industry. And it's easy to get caught up in, in what other people are doing and, and you know, it's, you know, and, and this giant mediaization of, of, of the industry as well. You know, it's all fine and dandy and it's great, you know, to have exchange of information to know what people are doing, but you, you get perspective on what's important. That's what I learned. How has the, how has the restaurant changed? Physically? More the food, really. Like, has, well, has your cooking changed? Uh, well, you know, we have, um, uh, I think the cooking has changed. Um, though if you ask me to put my finger on it, it'd be, it'd be tough to do. Um, you know, our lives are, you know, people who work in restaurants, uh, you know, so relentless. You know, we work so much, we work long hours, and we always have great ideas, but sometimes it's kind of like, uh, when do you have the time to implement them? You know, it's, it's nice to be organized and, and to come up with ideas and make changes and that sort of thing. But the one thing the, the, the break did afford us is it gave us six months not only as individuals, but as a team, to sit down and, and think about every process that we do, every, reevaluate every single step, whether it's a fork, how we drop something at the table, um, uh, shades of shades of tablecloths, uh, you know, just every single detail, you know, the knot and the tie of the servers, all this sort of stuff. We had a chance to reevaluate every single thing, and that's what we did. I mean, we met. I mean, you know, the management team. You know, we worked full time. We, I mean, we worked Monday through Friday, nine to five. We had regular. We had bankers' hours. You know, but we worked, and we sat down there. We methodically. We pretended we were guests at the restaurant. Walking in the door, and everything from you know the, the sidewalk and and the, the cracks in the sidewalk and then the walk, the stone path and the walk and and the trees, the placement of the trees and the front door, and we pretended we were guests, and we reevaluated every single step, wow. including the food. And we had because we had the time to do it. I mean, we had to keep it, you know we had to keep busy in that sense. So, um, I think um, we're different because of that. But if you ask me to put my finger on how is the food different, I, I don't know if I can tell you. It's not like a teaspoon more salt. In this no, it's like, definitely not like that. <laughs> it's a feeling thing. Well, David, we have come to the part of the eater upsell that we like to call the lightning round. Oh, it's great. nothing to be too afraid Excellent. of. Yeah. <laughs> you sound so enthusiastic about it. So we're just going to ask you a few questions. We ask all the chefs this, and you just, <laughs> you know. Great. The first thing that comes to your head, just, just you know. Oh, boy. Just, just roll it out there. Okay. So uh, when you're traveling and you have an hour to kill at the airport, what's your vice? Um, I will hmm, uh, read. You know, I'd find a place that's quiet and read, which can be difficult to do in a busy airport. Do you read like fiction or magazines? I read everything. I, I like to read a little bit of everything, but I do read fiction, yes. Yeah. So you walk into a bar. At, oh, you go to the bar in heaven that knows your favorite drink. Oh, I like the spin on it. Yeah. And what is that drink? <laughs> Um, wow. I'd say a Negroni. Yeah? Mm. 
Bitters, I like bitter. I like Amaro, anything with a kind of bitter flavor. I like that answer. It's a good answer. It's a very good one. Um, if you are um, on a road trip and you're just like alone flying down the endless highway with blue sky up above, what is the song that you're blasting and Ooh, singing along with? That's tough. That's tough. It could be anything. Uh, it could be a lot of things. I like road music. Road music is good. That's driving you know, with a beat. I don't know. I like, I like uh, a lot of old rhythm and blues, blues music. Yeah, big fan of jazz, but jazz is not music to drive by unless it's in the middle of the night. Somewhat erratic driving if you were driving along yeah. to jazz. Hey, it's just a regs night, you know, at Casa Kinch. You're hanging out and you're... A what gonna, night? You know, it's a regs. It's a regular night, you know? Reg night. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, you're just going to cook something. What is it? Uh, I'll roast a chicken. Anything with it or just like a chicken? Uh, it'll change. It'll change. But, you know, uh, roast chicken to me is, is one of those great dishes. You know, it's very simple. It's very, it's, very comp- it's very simple to make. It's very complicated to make perfect. So I learn something every time I roast a chicken. What do you do to the chicken before you put it in the oven? Do you like uh, speak or? sweetly to it? Uh, I think it, there's two things. There's, it's very, very important to stuff it, even if it's just with a piece of tin foil or a raw onion because... People don't understand. People say, well, you know, you roast a chicken, the breast is dry. You know, you got to cook the legs until they're finished, and the breast is always dry. That's because when you put a chicken in the oven and you don't have it stuffed, it's, it cooks from the inside out as well, the heat and that giant cavity. So if you put something in, it slows down the cooking of the breast. It only, the heat only comes from the top. Oh, that's a good tip. And feel- also smear, you know, I, well, I take chicken and I leave out a bunch of butter, room temperature, and I cover the entire surface of the chicken with butter before it goes in the oven. That's never a bad idea. <laughs> I think everything could stand to be smeared in butter before it goes in the oven. If you were not a chef, what would you be doing with your life? I don't know. I think it would probably be do something with the water or the ocean. I've been fascinated by the water. I was like, um, maybe something involving science or something like that. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for chatting with us here on the My Eater pleasure. Upsell. And David is uh, uh, one of the stars of the new season of Mind of a Chef. Yeah, which you can check out on PBS. That's right. Uh, Let's see. It starts, I think, this weekend with Gabriel Hamilton from Prune, which is really fantastic. She's the first half. And I think the Man Race episode starts sometime around, I think it's Halloween, actually, October 31st. Awesome. Check your local listings to figure out what your PBS channel is and watch Mind of a Chef. Thanks for being here, David. My pleasure. Thank you. On the next episode of The Eater Upsell, we're going to be talking with Garrett Oliver, the brewmaster at Brooklyn Brewery, basically the coolest dude in beer right now. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Eater Upsell. And as always, you can visit Eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening. <laughs>